Welcome to Brief Encounters and welcome to Intersections, Energy and Environmental Issues in Law and Tech, a podcast sponsored by the DC Bar and the Women's Bar Association of DC. I'm Kathy Pagano of the board of the Women's Bar Association of DC and I'm Catherine Cavallero with the DC Bar Steering Committee for the Energy, Environmental and Natural Resources Community and the co-chair of the WBA Energy, Environmental and Science Law Forum. Today, our guest is Alexander Klass, the Deputy General Counsel for Energy Efficiency and Clean Energy Demonstrations at the U.S. Department of Energy. She is currently on government leave from the University of Michigan Law School, where she is the James G. Degnan Professor of Law. Alex's experience draws from her versatile career as a law firm partner, an energy, environmental, and natural resources law professor, and an author of Energy and Environmental Law Legal Scholarship and Major Law Textbooks. Alex will share with us how DOE is developing and implementing new technologies and policies that will lead to greater electrification, help decarbonize the economy, save money for consumers and benefit communities, including low-income and disadvantaged communities. We'll also be asking Alex how she inspires others to work in this area. And just so you know, Alex's remarks and those of our two moderators are made solely in a personal capacity and do not represent the views of the federal government. Welcome, Alex. Thank you, Kathy and Catherine. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. Hi, Alex, and thanks for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about the Department of Energy's Office of General Counsel? Sure. The Office of General Counsel provides legal advice, counsel, and support to the secretary, the deputy secretary, and program offices throughout DOE to further the department's mission of ensuring U.S. security and prosperity by addressing its energy, environmental, and nuclear challenges through transformative science and technology solutions. DOE has a general counsel and five deputy general counsels, one for energy policy, one for general law, one for litigation and environmental management, one for financial assistance, technology transfer, and IP, and me for energy efficiency and clean energy demonstrations. There are also chief counsels and staff attorneys in multiple DOE field offices. All told, there's about 300 attorneys that work at DOE across the country, with just under half of them at our headquarters office at the Forestall Building on the National Mall, and the rest are at field offices that provide direct support to the National Lab. So Alex, in that office, you are the Deputy General Counsel for Energy Efficiency and Clean Energy Demonstration. Can you explain a little bit about the nature of your role and the priorities of your office? Yes. So I was asked to join the Biden-Harris administration in this position in April 2022, so just about a year ago. And it's been quite a year. The Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, also known as the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, enacted in 2021, and the Inflation Reduction Act enacted in 2022 are both game changers. They provide hundreds of billions of dollars to boost clean energy and really move the needle forward on a major U.S. energy transition. So my title is Deputy General Counsel for Energy Efficiency and Clean Energy Demonstrations, and I supervise the career attorneys in three separate offices within the Office of General Counsel. So, for example, the Office of the Assistant General Counsel for Legislation, Regulation, and Energy Efficiency helps guide all the proposed legislation and regulations coming out of all the DOE programs. These approximately 15 attorneys handle issues associated with notice and comment rulemaking, working with OIRA, 
and other topics you might have learned about in your administrative law class. Most of the rules coming out of DOE are rules setting appliance efficiency standards under the Energy Policy and Conservation Act, EPCA, and I'll talk more about those later. So that's what occurs in the Office of the Assistant General Counsel for Legislation, Regulation, and Energy Efficiency. What about the portfolio of the other two offices that you supervise? So another one is the Office of the Assistant General Counsel for Enforcement. So that's a team of attorneys that enforce the appliance efficiency standards that DOE sets. They seek civil penalties and injunctive relief when necessary, either in ALJ proceedings or in federal court. I also supervise the attorneys in the Office of the Assistant General Counsel for Clean Energy Demonstrations. These attorneys support the new Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations, or OSED, that was created by Congress in the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law of 2021. And then there's another group of attorneys that report to me from the Golden Field Office in Golden, Colorado, which supports the National Renewable Energy Lab, or NREL, and then also the attorneys at the National Energy Technology Lab, or NETL, in Pittsburgh and Morgantown, West Virginia. So these attorneys in these two offices provide legal support for NREL and NETL, and both of those labs do cutting-edge research in clean energy technology themselves, but also issue billions of dollars in federal financial assistance in the form of cooperative agreements, grants, and prizes to the private sector, state, tribes, local governments, universities, other nonprofits, and communities pursuant to congressional direction from a number of statutes. That's a tremendous amount of work. And specifically, can you give some examples of how you and your team support the DOE program offices in your portfolio? Yes. So we provide legal advice to DOE programs as they enact rules setting regulatory standards for industry or as they prepare to set the parameters for providing financial assistance to government entities or the private sector based on statutory authorization. So, for instance, I mentioned before that the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law of 2021 created DOE's Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations, or OSED. So, OSED represents a new chapter that builds on DOE's longstanding position as the premier international driver for clean energy research and development by filling a critical innovation gap on the path to net zero emissions by 2050. The Bipartisan Infrastructure Law provided more than $20 billion to OSED to support clean energy technology demonstration projects in areas that include clean hydrogen, carbon capture and sequestration, grid-scale energy storage, energy improvements on rural and remote lands, small modular nuclear reactors, and much more. And these demonstration projects are designed to prove the effectiveness of innovative technologies in real-world conditions at scale to pave the way towards widespread commercial adoption and deployment. And so the lawyers that I supervise support OSED in doing all of this work. And you said that work is about $20 billion provided by the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law. How would a business organization apply for that type of funding? So DOE issues what are called funding opportunity announcements, or FOAs, as we say. And these documents can be 30 pages or up to 100 pages long. And what they do is they set out the eligibility criteria and they describe the types of projects DOE is seeking to fund based on statutory authorizations and administrative priorities. Sometimes there are multiple rounds of funding for particular projects. Potential applicants and the public can see the status of these funding opportunity announcements updated in real time on our DOE website. 
A few examples of FOAs are the $2.5 billion one for carbon capture demonstration projects. There's an $8 billion FOA for regional clean hydrogen hubs, a billion dollars for energy improvements in rural and remote areas, and $3.5 billion for regional direct air capture hubs. And DOE lawyers play a really critical role in drafting the FOAs to award these funds on a competitive basis. They help our contracting officers negotiate agreements with awardees, and they answer questions regarding appropriate use of funding along the way. That's pretty impressive, Alex. Now, earlier you mentioned the uh, appliance efficiency standards that some of the attorneys work on. What is the appliance standard program and how do the DOE lawyers support it? So that's a longstanding DOE program. The appliance standards program has a statutory mandate to set efficiency standards and test procedures for more than 60 products, representing about 90% of home energy use, 60% of commercial building energy use, and 30% of industrial energy use. So these include everything from computers to refrigerators and freezers to heating and cooling systems for homes and offices and industries. And the program has served as one of the nation's most effective policies to improve energy efficiency and to save consumers energy and money. It's one of the primary reasons why U.S. electricity demand has not increased very much since approximately 2007 even though we all have more computers and TVs and phones and other devices that are using power than we did 15 years ago. And the attorneys in the Regulation and Energy Efficiency Office work with our Appliance Standards Program to ensure that the rules that are setting the efficiency standards meet the statutory requirements in the Energy Policy and Conservation Act, or EPCA, which was enacted in the 1970s. The attorneys engage with both the industries being regulated, as well as energy efficiency groups, consumer groups, and environmental advocacy groups to obtain input during the rulemaking process. Alex, this appliance standards work is so pivotal in saving so much energy and saving costs for us all. Now, could you please tell us a bit about how your office supports the Inflation Reduction Act policies? Yes, absolutely. So I started with DOE in April of 2022, and in August of that year, Congress enacted the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a historic $369 billion investment in the modernization of the American energy system. This act represents the largest climate and clean energy investment in American history. It provides 10 years of clean energy financial support to manufacturers, installers, and investors in clean energy and it provides incentives and rebates for individual consumers and significant long-term clean energy production and investment tax credits for wind, solar, energy storage, nuclear energy, geothermal energy, and other carbon-free sources of electricity. So as one example of our work supporting the IRA, tax credits are administered by the Department of Treasury. But DOE programs and DOE attorneys are working closely with Treasury and with IRS to help design these clean energy tax credits consistent with the IRA statutory language while providing short-term and long-term benefits for energy producers and consumers. So many DOE attorneys, including me, spent a lot of time working on these pivotal programs, which didn't even exist a year ago. So it's very exciting. That is really exciting, Alex. But what technology is a particular favorite and why? 
I really enjoy working with the multiple programs at DOE that are supporting efforts to commercialize and reduce the cost of clean hydrogen, which can really be a game changer for U.S. and global greenhouse gas reductions. Hydrogen can be an important tool to decarbonize the economy because of its potential use in hard-to-decarbonize sectors like heavy-duty trucking and industrial applications, where clean electricity on its own has limitations, at least for now. Today, hydrogen is primarily produced using a process with natural gas without carbon capture, and that results in pretty significant greenhouse gas emissions. So both the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and the Inflation Reduction Act provided significant funding and production tax credits for developing clean hydrogen that does not emit greenhouse gases. Clean hydrogen can be produced by using natural gas with carbon capture or by using carbon-free electricity from nuclear energy or wind or solar or other renewable energy resources to split water molecules to produce hydrogen. So the goal is to provide funding and other support to reduce the cost of these approaches and create a clean hydrogen economy. That's a great goal, and hydrogen sounds like a very exciting technology. How do the lawyers on your team support work in the clean hydrogen space? A few different ways. So our Office of the Assistant General Counsel for Clean Energy Demonstrations supports OSED, and one of the OSED demonstration projects is the $8 billion Regional Clean Hydrogen Hub project. So this financial assistance is available to technology developers, industry, utilities, universities, state and local governments, tribes, environmental groups, and others, or a combination of these groups, to develop projects that will form the foundation of a national clean hydrogen network. So some of the lawyers on my team are involved in this pivotal project, and they're working closely with OSED and our Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Technology Office. Lawyers in the office are also working with their counterparts at Treasury as that agency develops rules to implement the new clean hydrogen production tax credit created in the Inflation Reduction Act. So there's key components of both the Inflation Reduction Act and the bipartisan infrastructure law that are in the process of being used to develop this clean hydrogen economy. Wow, Alex, that's all very fascinating and pivotal work. Let's talk now about how your work can directly impact communities and low-income individuals. How does your office assist in making new technology accessible to others, particularly low-income communities? Well, DOE is at the center of implementing existing and new programs to make clean energy and energy-efficient products and technologies available to low-income consumers and communities. So an example, the Inflation Reduction Act includes tax credits designed to help more Americans invest in equipment that can save them money. So tax credits for electric heat pumps and rooftop solar and new and used electric vehicles. So for example, a typical household that invests in rooftop solar can expect to save $9,000 over the lifetime of the solar system. Households that install a heat pump can save $500 and in some cases nearly $1,000 on their annual utility bills. In addition, DOE is fully committed to implementing President Biden's Justice 40 initiative that was set out in a 2021 executive order. This initiative is a plan to deliver 40% of the overall benefits of climate investments to disadvantaged communities. DOE's Office of Economic Impact and Diversity leads a department-wide effort to implement Justice 40 and inform equitable research, development, and deployment of clean energy at DOE. 
That's really great, Alex, to hear about how so many people that can take advantage of these excellent programs and assistance. We understand that DOE also is helping large energy users and the industrial sector increase the adoption of on-site energy technologies. Could you please share some examples? I'd be happy to. So the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and the Inflation Reduction Act provided DOE with $6.3 billion to support the advancement of transformational technologies necessary to decarbonize the industrial energy sector. Industrial emissions account for roughly a third of the nation's carbon footprint, and the industrial sector is considered one of the most difficult to decarbonize due to the diversity of energy inputs, processes, and operations. The sector's emissions result not just from fuel for heat and power, but also from feedstocks and processes that are just inherently carbon intensive. So OSED is helping to implement the Industrial Demonstrations Program, which focuses on the highest emitting and the hardest to abate industries where decarbonization technologies can have the greatest impact. So this includes iron and steel, cement and concrete, chemicals and refining, food and beverage, and paper and forest products. So widespread demonstration and deployment of projects within these industries are designed to support President Biden's initiative to really rebuild U.S. leadership in manufacturing as countries and companies and consumers around the world shift to low to no carbon commodities to meet their own decarbonization goals. Thanks, Alex. We're going to switch now to a little bit about you. And uh, it's clear from what you've already shared with us that not only are you highly knowledgeable about all aspects of the Department of Energy's work, especially under the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and the Inflation Reduction Act, but you're passionate about the scientific and the legal developments that you've shared with us in the energy and environmental area. Uh, What advice do you have for those entering this field today? So my advice would be if you are interested in an environmental and energy law practice, Don't be deterred because you don't have a science background. I was a political science and French major in college. I have no particular aptitude for science, math, or technology. But you need to be willing to learn, be able to ask questions, and work closely with environmental consultants and engineers and other technical experts, which is just fascinating. When I was a law firm partner prior to entering academia and the federal government, I represented a few clients in jury trials that involved liability for environmental contamination under the state and federal Superfund laws. So that required eliciting testimony from a range of environmental technical experts. And in some ways, I always thought my lack of a science background was an asset because I was able to take the witnesses step by step through their testimony and was better able to put myself in the jury's position and make sure that the evidence was presented clearly and plainly for a non-expert audience. And I have found the same to be true as an academic teaching energy law and natural resources law courses, and even as I'm getting up to speed and learning about the highly technical aspects of DOE's work. The key is to know your audience, to be willing to learn the topic, and to rely on experts to help you along the way. As I said, this has been very true during my time at DOE. I've been so lucky to work with leading scientists and engineers and policy experts in addition to the extremely talented lawyers in the general counsel's office. So for law students and lawyers interested in the field, I know there's often a focus on going to work at EPA or DOJ, which are both great, but also realize that there is really exciting energy, environmental, and climate law work happening in multiple federal agencies, including at DOE, the Department of Transportation, and now at the Department of Treasury as they take the lead on developing the clean energy tax credit provisions in the IRA. 
Alex, those are great lessons. Let me just repeat a few of them for our listeners because there's so much that you've just shared. For those entering this field, think about your audience, think about asking key questions, be willing to learn, and of course, to work closely and learn from the experts, especially the technical experts that already exist in this area. So Alex, what what do you find particularly inspirational about this area? Energy law is a rapidly changing field and has gone from an area that's focused primarily on resource extraction and utility regulation to the main field of law addressing climate change and decarbonization. We have to address climate change through energy policy. And today there's a real convergence of environmental and energy law around climate change. So this means there's so much opportunity for lawyers to shape and implement energy policy in ways that can make a real difference in our world. And we get to work with professionals at the cutting edge of science and technology as well as community leaders and advocates that focus on environmental and energy justice. Here at DOE, I'm inspired every day by all of the professionals across the agency committed to decarbonization, energy transition, and environmental and energy justice. Alex, this is very inspiring for us. Are there any other lessons that you would like to share to help and mentor others in their career paths? I would say be open to opportunities and don't assume your first job will be your last. It probably will not be. Every job teaches you something, even if it's that you don't like that job and now you know you want a different type of work environment or a different type of practice area. Also, stay in touch with classmates and former colleagues. Follow up with people you meet at social and work events and try to be in person as much as you can, whether it's your job, a continuing legal education event, et cetera. While remote work does provide a lot of flexibility, it also reduces in-person interaction, which is really important for professional development and networking. I'm a big fan of in-person work and in-person meetings. And I would say even if your workplace is partially or fully remote, you can always create opportunities to engage with your colleagues or clients in person as often as you can, both inside and outside the office. Alex, this is such invaluable inspiration and tips for us all as we proceed along our careers. We really want to thank you, Alex, for taking the time to share these fascinating developments and your valuable time with us. We want to thank you, the DC Bar, the Women's Bar Association of DC, and our listeners. And we invite you all to watch for our next Intersections podcast. Thank you all so very much.